0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. It's a genuine pleasure to have Deb Calvert as my guest today. Deb is author of two books, Discover Questions and Stop Selling, Start Leading, and she's also founder of the Sales Experts channel. She's highly influential in the sales world and in business, and very highly regarded by myself and thousands of others who are trying our best to demonstrate that sales is a force for good. Deb, welcome.
1: Thank you, Marcus. I am delighted to be here.
0: Deb, would you mind giving the audience one or two minute potted history of how you got to where you are and what you stand for?
1: Well, I've been in business for 14 years. I went into business for myself because the Fortune 500 company that I worked for decided to sell itself only three years after I had relocated and, and taken a job there. And I had four job offers. They were in four very different places. I didn't really want to move again. So I called all four. I said, hey, would you hire me on as a consultant? Three out of the four said yes. And my business, People First, Productivity Solutions was born. And that's really what I stand for. I believe that if you want to succeed in business and sales and life, you do it by putting people first and all the rest comes through people.
0: Excellent. So on that note, I know when we were prepping for this call, we were talking about the importance of values from, as a salesperson, to, def- to live by and sell by your values. So one of the things you mentioned was that there's a huge investment in sales enablement out in the marketplace, thousands of different applications and software products and tools. But you mentioned something, sales enablement. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I think that's a really interesting topic.
1: Yes, I think that it is vitally important, and I should pause just to define the word. I think it's a seldom used word. To ennoble means to make something worthy or important. And the opposite is a word that's more familiar. That opposite is ignoble, (laughs) to make something (laughs) feel bad. And I think, unfortunately, due to the negative stereotypes about selling, People do often feel badly about the profession and about the work they do. And sometimes they follow role models or they think they have to assume a personality that isn't genuine and they don't put the best of themselves into the work they do as selling. So I think first is to ennoble yourself, to remember that you are the greatest value that you'll ever bring to your buyer. And then to be feeling ennobled in the product that you sell to make sure that it's the right one to, to meet the buyer's needs and, you know, pass it along. Then you ennoble your buyer. You help your buyer to feel good about buying and, and working with you. And to me, sales ennoblement all the way across the board from the leadership of an organization to the salesperson extended out to the buyer Sales ennoblement is far more important than sales enablement. In fact, too much of the enablement takes away from the ennoblement.
0: I agree. I mean, we're in violent agreement here. I think one of the challenges that we see is that too often the intent behind a salesperson's attempt to sell to a prospect is too eye-centered. It's very selfish. They turn up with the hope that they're going to make a sale, with the intent of making a sale. And with the intent of hitting their target or catching up because they're behind. Now, we recently at Sandler did some research and nearly 70% of salespeople worldwide were at 60% or below target, which mm. creates a scarcity mentality. And 30% were below 40% of target. Now, if a salesperson's going in with that noise in their head, that pressure, they're not going to go in thinking and asking themselves the questions, can I help? And if I can, am I the right person to help? So this then brings me to the next issue around the values that managers need to be teaching to their team. Certainly management is one of the most undertrained and poorly developed area of sales. And Jonathan Farrington said a couple of months ago, on the Sandler podcast interview with Brian Sullivan that only 6% of sales managers globally are qualified to be in the role of sales manager. Any idea why that might be?
1: That's a very sad number. Um, And I think the main reason is that sales managers are unfairly promoted into their roles. They're very good at selling but they're never given proper training. Perhaps they're not even selected for the right reasons. And they're never told, this job has two parts. The the parts are to manage sales, not make sales yourself, but manage sales. And the second part is to lead people. And most sales managers that I encounter have never heard this notion of thinking of themselves as leaders who motivate and guide and inspire salespeople. So all they do, because they don't know any better, Is they hammer on those sales numbers, which pushes that scarcity mentality that you were talking about.
0: I have a view that sales managers only have four lines on their job description. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work and protect their team from their idiot bosses. And too often they focus on the wrong things. So they recruit to fill a seat and get a warm body in it and they recruit for the wrong elements. They recruit for lag indicators, like skills, experience, and results. Yesterday, I was at an old client of mine's new company, and he's been trying to get me in there for a while, but they've been going through all sorts of restructures. Three years in a row, they've managed to miss their number. The the VC is now three years behind where they expected to be for their exit. And What was really interesting was he came into this industry with no experience. And he is now their top salesperson by a factor of 50. He wasn't ruined. No. (laughs) And what they don't look at are the leading indicators, things like habits, their cognitive abilities, their values, beliefs, attitudes. So from a, a leadership and a sales perspective, what do you consider to be the fundamentally most important habits?
1: Well, I think leadership habits are important, and there are thirty of them. These are proven by by research. Thirty that cause people to more willingly choose to follow you, and we report on those in "Stop Selling and Start Leading" to help sales people think of and adopt the behaviors that buyers desire. But I'll add one to the mix. You had a, a very nice list there. I think that critical thinking is something that is desperately needed in sales and in sales management. Critical thinking, the ability to Pair information, to process it, and then to connect the dots between the pieces that you've heard so you're better with problem-solving and and decision-making. You know what salespeople do instead. Because of that scarcity mentality, they pounce on the very first hint of a need that's ever floated by the buyer instead of reflecting on it or trying to pull pieces together and draw more information out about it. And it just makes it easy for a buyer to say no because maybe you're overreacting to a tertiary need or you haven't sensibly put together the rationale for the recommendation that you're making?
0: What we teach is the problem the prospect brings you is never the real problem. They normally bring you a problem in two forms. They either bring you a symptom, which is intellectual, surface level, and it's an indicator that there is a pain there, but it's not the cause of the pain itself. And if you treat skin cancer with a topical ointment, rather than treating the cancer, it's not going to go away. And the other way they bring you a problem is they bring you nirvana. They tell you with a prevailing wind and with no barnacles on the hull and uh, the current going in the right direction, this is what we want. And they paint this magical picture, but they don't paint the bit in the middle, which is how did we get here? What acts of idiocy, self-sabotage, emissions did we create in order to dig ourselves into this hole? And there are a lot of people. One of my clients came up with a fantastic Image. If you imagine a dollar sign and then there's an arrow going backwards and forwards either way, and then a person on the other side. And the model is this make the money or we won't train you. Or we'll train you, and the byproduct is we make profit. And the problem is that so many people in management and leadership have that scarcity mentality. But we've just got in the UK, we've just gone through 10 years of austerity which means that if we do go into a recession in 2020, there's nothing else to cut. The only thing that they can do is cut heads. Now, if that happens, then you lose a lot of talent and you lose a lot of those relationships. So what is it? I know, obviously, you're talking about stop selling, start leading. Talk to me about what leadership looks like on a day-to-day basis. What are the habits? You mentioned there are 30. What are some of those habits that great sales leaders have?
1: Well, let me start with a premise because I think it frames up and makes some of these very obvious. You see, the word lead, it comes from a root word of "laden" L-E-D-E-N. And that word originally meant to guide. So the visual that you should have if you think of yourself as a leader is that you have a machete and you're out in front and you're cutting down the vines along the pathway you're creating through the jungle and people are following you. The reason they're following you is because they want to go where you're taking them. They want to get to this other place. They're willing to face those hardships through the jungle to get there. So first and foremost, as a leader, you can't lead people to a place they don't want to go. You have to know where they wanna go. Then you've got the first step in it. So this is about inspiring people, breathing life into this vision of where they want to be. Okay, so now what are the habits? Well, first of all, behaviorally, we need to be asking questions. We need to know people on an individual basis. Where do you want to go? What matters to you? What are some of the dreams and the hopes and plans, the visions you have for yourself in the future? And this would be manager to salesperson. It would be salesperson to buyer, the very same. And then another habit that goes hand in hand with that is that of course, as we're making our way through the jungle, guiding somebody to a new place, there will be obstacles. There will be bumps in the road along the way. And as leaders, we have to be willing to encourage people, to give them courage when the going gets tough. I think this is hugely forgotten by salespeople. We thank the buyer. you know, Thank you very much. At the end of the cycle, we thank them for signing the contract. Along the way, we forget to encourage them as they're doing the heavy lifting inside their own organizations. To sever relationships with other vendors, to put their neck out there on the chopping block in case this doesn't work for whatever they're advocating to do with us, to introduce in training and systems replacements and to get budget. There's a lot that they have to do, Absolutely. but we don't encourage them. We don't thank them. We, if anything, we call them up and we simply say, hey, what's going on? How are we doing? Do we have it yet? And that's not encouraging. That's just extra pressure. So those are just two examples of some high-level sort of things that need to be done.
0: Deb, I think you've touched on something really important. For you as a seller, it's a transaction. It's an opportunity. For them, it's their job. It's their livelihood. It's what puts food on the table, feeds their kids, a roof over their head. And I think a lot of salespeople forget that. And more importantly, what they fail to do is they fail to prepare their customer to do the internal sales. Yes. And one of the most important things that certainly I teach my clients and when I'm selling the same thing is to rehearse them, take them through the process, invest the time in really understanding what the landscape looks like, who the friends are, who the enemies are, who the neutrals or unknowns are, what other priorities are going on, the typical the communication styles of the people that they're going to be having to sell to internally, who's looking for them to fail, who's after the same budget that they are. And if Mm -hmm. you don't go through that process, if you don't really invest in it, you're not forming that partnership with your customer. And what typically happens then is you're constantly going out trying to find new business because the customers that you just sold to don't want to go through that misery all over again. And the research that I read earlier on this year, costing anywhere between 12 and 25 times more to sell to a new customer than to an existing one. Why would you put yourself through that just because you don't want to have or you don't know how to have those conversations with your internal advocates and sponsors?
1: It's true. And we take people for granted. That's one of the reasons why it happens. Once we have a customer, we assume that they will always be our customer because we have a great relationship, we have a rapport, we've been working together X number of years and we forget that they still need to be inspired to continue going to this new place. They still need to be encouraged and more than ever, they need to be themselves ennobled. We need to make people feel worthy and important about the work that we're doing together.
0: Again, you've just touched on something that's really important. If you don't feel like the work that you're doing is important and meaningful, then you're probably best placed to find another job. Now, I recognize it's not always easy to do that, but why would you spend 12, 14, 16 hours a day for the best part of 40 years of your life doing stuff that ignobles you, makes you feel like that somehow you're doing yourself, your customers a disservice or working with horrible people? I know it's easy to say now that I've reached the sort of venerable age that I have, But I think one of the most important things is to be true to yourself and understand the difference between your role, what you do, and your identity, who you are. And if you're not being true to that identity, then that creates a dissonance. And that's why one of the things I'm seeing an awful lot of in the sales trade press is about well-being because of the amount of depression, stress-related illness. Why would you ever choose to be in a profession that created that kind of horrific impact on your health and your general mental well-being.
1: And how much of it is self-imposed? Maybe you are in a company where you could feel very good about the work that you do. Maybe you sell a product that really could help people, but maybe you've lost sight of that. And instead of truly trying to help people and representing the mission of your organization, maybe you've gotten so hyper-focused on make the sale, make the quick sale, do something to people, run over them if you have to. Maybe you are the problem and a change of mind would help.
0: Generally, I mean, in making channel sales work, one of the rules that we implemented in that is if your partnerships aren't working, look in the mirror. There are no bad prospects. There are only bad salespeople. If you start taking ownership, responsibility, and you own whatever the situation is that you're in, then you can choose to do something different. But in my experience, most salespeople and most managers are reacting instead of responding because they aren't thinking critically. They're not stepping back. They're not asking the questions, OK, where did we go wrong? One of my friends and a colleague in Sandra, Amy Woodall, is a specialist in customer service. And she came up with one of probably the best little maxim. And it's this, our customers are not always right. But when they're wrong, it's often our fault. That's our good. Sales, isn't it good? I mean, that, she gets credit every time for that one. But you see the same thing. If our salespeople aren't performing, then as managers, we have to look in the mirror. Where did we go wrong in the recruitment process? In the onboarding process, in the ongoing training and development, are we coaching? One of the things that we see an awful lot of is managers who talk about coaching, but what they do is on-the-job telling. That's not coaching.
1: That's mentoring at best. And there is this very widespread confusion between the two. We were talking about scarcity a moment ago, and you just described something else that fuels it. It's it's short-term thinking. Sales managers, because they come from sales where it's always about this quota period, that's, they're so conditioned to do that that they stay focused on the short term instead of realizing that part of a management job is to build for the long term.
0: Milton Friedman has an awful lot to answer for. Ah, okay. Well, the shareholder value, that's where it came from. Yes. Uh, quarterly reporting, all of that stuff, because that is a toxic, it's an utterly poisonous culture. And one thing that's really interesting At the end of the Korean War, the US delegation rented three stories of the Hilton for the negotiation of the treaty. The Chinese rented a five bedroom house for three years.
1: Long term or short term?
0: Absolutely. Now, European and US business work on quarterly reporting cycles. Chinese companies have 100 year plans. Wow. Yeah. They're always looking in the long term and they know every bump in the road is just a bump. But if you're looking quarter to quarter, A friend of mine, Sam Sethi, used to be in the military. And when he passed out of Sanchez, his commanding officer said, Sam, stand with your nose to that map. And he was with his nose to the map and said, now you're a private. Take one step back. Now you're a sergeant. And now take another step back. Now you're a captain. Another, another. Now you're a general. And the problem is that I think salespeople have to have the thinking of a general, particularly in enterprise. If you're selling enterprise deals, two enterprises. It's complex. Selling is about 10% of the job. The other 90% is herding cats and program management.
1: Yes. And not neglecting those pieces because they often do make the difference between whether or not you sell the business and retain the business. Salespeople forget that and they get conditioned internally, right? Make 100 calls a day. Well, how am I going to mind any details or do any sort of quality work if I have metrics like that that
0: I'm held accountable for? Absolutely. I mean, that's activity. Meaningful, decisive action is having five unique, effective conversations a day. Don't care if you do it in five or 500, as long as you have those five. And one of the other things that I see a lot of is when things aren't working out, what happens is they move the goalposts, they take the target down, they revise the budget. Instead of focusing on the right end of the problem, which is modify the behavior. And think about why isn't it working?
1: So let me give you a visual this is something that helps a lot of of sales managers see things differently. You'd have to imagine a pyramid. And this pyramid is divided into four horizontal sections. So at the very tip of the pyramid, at the top of the pyramid, that would be results. And of course, results are what we're all after in selling or in just about anything that we ever do. So what is it that leads to results? And that is the next bar down in our pyramid. What leads to results are the right actions. So managers often focus on results and they do focus on actions, sometimes superficially. But the work of sales management is in those top two parts of the pyramid, results and actions. Unfortunately, sales managers don't often enough get to the next two bars of the pyramid, the foundational ones. This is the realm of leadership. To know how to do that, you have to ask yourself, well, why? Why do people choose the actions that they choose? If I'm not looking, if I'm not micromanaging them, what is it that's causing them to take those actions? And if we were to think about this for a few minutes, we would realize that it's people's own beliefs. What I believe is what's going to cause me to take the actions that I take. And no matter how much you tell me, Marcus, to take this other action, if my own beliefs differ, I will still choose mine. So, base of the pyramid, and this is from a a very good book, but the base of the pyramid is experience. Our own experience fuels our beliefs. The work of leadership is creating the right experiences to shape the right beliefs that will drive the right actions and get those results. And sales managers need to come down further into the pyramid.
0: And what book does that come from?
1: It is called Journey to the Emerald City, and I am struggling to remember the names of the authors. It's really about culture. So if you want to create sales culture, you create experiences and beliefs.
0: Okay. And we have to click our heels and we'll end up in Kansas. And I know that. Yes. Um, so who's the team that you're sporting on your shirt at the moment?
1: Oh, this is the Kansas City Royals. I am in, on the Missouri side, but that's the hometown team. Yes.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So I think I'd like to take that a little bit further as well. One of the things that I see managers talk about is work harder, but that doesn't really work. All that, what that does is it essentially just digs yourself deeper into the rut. One of my favorite definitions of a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out. And I see a lot of salespeople's careers ending up on the rocks in that coffin, in that rut. Because when you talk to them and you ask them about that, how much experience they do have, they tell you 20 years. But what they actually have is one year's experience 20 times over.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And often the manager is the person who's been there for the longest or has been least unsuccessful at selling. And they do what was done to them. So if you were the government minister responsible for sales, What changes would you make in terms of the requirements to become a sales manager? And what would that process, that runway look like so that you ended up creating fantastic sales management?
1: Oh, yes. I'm rubbing my hands together. The power, the awesome power that this would be. (laughs) (laughs) The first thing I would do is I would help people to make a successful passage and to appreciate and want to make a passage from being a frontline salesperson to being a sales manager, to be able to give up the way that they had done things before and not be mired in the past, to know that it's not their job ever to go out and make sales. It's their job to teach other people to effectively make those sales so that they can assume a more strategic, longer-term focus. I would look for people who had the competencies required to be a good coach as opposed to a mentor. Coaches, they extract, they ask questions, they promote self-discovery. They are able to resist the urge to jump in and take over because they want to observe and help people to learn even from their mistakes. So I'd look for someone who has those capabilities, not just the best salesperson. And I would prohibit them from managing people until they successfully demonstrated their ability to think critically and problem-solve to not overreact, but to be responsive and to be future-focused problem solvers who are also people builders. That's a lot.
0: I have tall orders here. Well, I think you're right. I would take it further as well. I think a high degree of self-awareness is really important because managers who aren't self-aware are likely to create all sorts of problems inadvertently. And I think You need to have managers who are thin-skinned, sorry, thick-skinned, because a thin-skinned manager will resist developing people because they represent a threat. I remember one of my friends had a pal who was the top salesperson in a BMW dealership. And when this guy earned more than the dealer principal, he was fired.
1: Hmm. So short-sighted.
0: The other thing that I see, which again is ludicrous and it's a mad culture, is salespeople's commission being capped.
1: What on earth are they thinking? (laughs) I don't know. That's a budgeting mechanism and it's a scarcity mentality. You, You hit the nail on the head with that.
0: I think that's probably a hangover because the route to the chief exec is either through sales or through the finance department historically. Now, I'm quite encouraged because I think those two routes are probably going to come to an end pretty quickly. IT had an opportunity, but they blew it, largely because of lacking interpersonal skills. And marketing's never really had the gumption, sadly, because I I see sales as a subset of marketing. A lot of salespeople revile me for that, but I can live with it. I have a friend, I don't need another one. I think where we're going to start seeing chief executives rising through the ranks is going to be from heads of channel, because they need to, the kind of thinking and strategic insight that someone who is a channel chief needs to have, their breadth and depth of relationships makes them in profile much closer to a chief executive than a VP of sales. So they've already had the grounding of running an organization and leading if they've been successful. And the other is the head of data analytics. I'm really convinced that those two disciplines are likely to be where the next generation of lead CEOs and leaders will come from. But they have to be encouraged. And this is one of the things that I really wanted to dig in, which is a creating a runway where managers are comfortable enough to identify who is going to be their successor. And over two years or so, exposing them to the skills that they need and the type of functions that they need. So taking on a couple of people to coach and mentor, taking on some of the uh, managing of sales meetings, going out on windscreen training, all this kind of stuff. So that by the time they're actually promoted into the job, they've done two years, they've got two years of experience under their belt instead of congratulations then you are one. Go figure it out. Absolutely. On your own. Because <laughs> so what normally happens is they do what was done to them, which is someone stands at the front of the room and gets people to do their school report, the work of fiction, also known as a forecast. And then they give the people who are underperforming a hard time. And for the rest, it's a death march. They're just waiting to either be pulled apart or to listen to somebody fibbing from the forecast. And that's you know, 10 people for an hour and a half wasting their time. That's one and a half man days lost. You're never going to get it back. Tell me this, questioning. I'm a big fan of asking difficult, challenging, and insightful questions. Why is it questioning from salespeople is so tediously dull?
1: Well, I will name two reasons. The first is that they confuse the discovery process with qualifying. And so they ask questions that are self-serving, only to try and identify a need and corral a buyer into a certain predetermined solution. And that's boring for the buyer. It's actually pretty useless for the salesperson, but they have never come to that understanding that, th- that there is something else they could be doing. And the second reason is that sellers, there's a fear of exposure. If they ask a question and the buyer gives them an answer they don't fully understand, they get very nervous about that. They are unwilling to dive deeper and to use that as a learning opportunity or to acknowledge that they don't know something. And because they may not have a lot of uh, business acumen outside their own industry, they they withhold good questions. Let me add a third one. The scarcity mentality bleeds over into how much time sellers are willing to invest in any one prospect and their assumption that buyers are too busy. They don't want to spend time with me. So they race through list of crappy questions to try to get some relationship established and some advance on a sale. It just doesn't
0: work. I couldn't agree more. I mean, when I go into companies or uh, have clients come to me for the first few sessions, the quality of their questions is truly atrocious and they don't get inside the skin of the buyer. They don't think, why is it? How did they get to where they are? What's the real root cause of their problem? Marcus, we want some cold call training. Almost never is the problem cold calling technique. It's bad, but the real problem is the catastrophizing voice in their head that tells them nobody wants to receive cold calls. I'm going to get a bad time. Gatekeepers are going to keep me out. I'm going to get voicemail, and this is going to be a miserable experience. And they make it happen. They make it true. And in fact, what's really interesting is I saw some research recently that said that 94% of CEOs hate receiving cold calls, but 86% love receiving good ones. Now, that's quite disparaging. That makes sense. Now, tell me this. In terms of questioning, if we turn that process back on it ourselves, we're looking in the ugly mirror, if you like, what are the questions as sellers we should be asking ourselves?
1: I think the first question you should ask yourself as a seller is, do I really want to do this? If you don't, if you can't reconcile within yourself the good that you could be doing, stop doing it. You're really hurting the profession. You're hurting the rest of us. And if every seller in the world listened to this podcast simultaneously and half of them left the profession, I'd be okay with that because you're not making goal anyway. (laughs) And now, you know, if you ask yourself that question and you want to do it, but you don't know how to do it, at least now you can go get the skill, but you have to have the will to do it well before you can ever be open enough to acquire the skills. So ask that question and then ask yourself, not just this time in the mirror, but every day, ask yourself, what did I do well today? And what could I improve on? I wasn't happy with the way that turned out. What went wrong? What could I do better? How could I A-B test and try something else? What resources do I need? Open yourself up to learn. And that's the only way you'll grow. And that's true in any job. It's not just sales.
0: I think you've touched on something really important here, which is vulnerability. I think most people, or many people, grow up seeing vulnerability as a personality defect, a weakness. And the reality is, it comes from the Latin word that means to make yourself woundable and do it anyway. Vulnerabilis means that a Roman legionary would go into battle, but they would take off their armor before they went in. Now, I have to say, that kind of decision, not terribly clever, but definitely an act of courage. And you touched on it earlier that often salespeople are afraid to ask the question in case they get an answer that they don't want or like. But from a qualification point of view, it makes a hell of a lot of sense to ask a question and get the answer you don't want to hear, because then you can disqualify out. Yes. So that scarcity mentality keeps maybes and hoper-hopers in the pipeline, which must make, well, it does make managers' lives a misery when it comes to forecasting. Mm-hmm. So. What are the kind of questions managers should be asking of their salespeople when the salespeople come back from a meeting with a prospect? How do they debrief?
1: As coaches, you ask the very same questions the salespeople ask themselves. What went well? How do you know it went well? What could you improve on? It went well. How could it be even better? And what didn't go so well? Okay, now tell me the rest. What else didn't go so well? And what can you do next time? What resources and training do you need to do better next time? What are you going to try to do differently? And don't just ask, did you make the sale? Because a seller is going to say, yes, but, and they're going to take the continuance and try to take that continuance to the bank. That's where the forecast and and the pipeline get all convoluted is because sellers don't know the difference between a yes and a maybe, partly because they talk themselves into maybes being yeses to satisfy their sales managers. So sales managers should ask for honesty. They should value learning every bit as much as they value the dollar sign. Dollar sign is short-term, learning is long-term.
0: A very interesting book. I don't know if you've read it by Bill Bartlett called The Sales Coach's Playbook.
1: Yes, I have.
0: It's a lovely book. Bill's fantastic. So it's been a massive influence on me and his three Ps for coaching are really powerful. So potency, protection, and permission helping the salesperson know that they will not be punished or penalized for telling the truth and making sure that there's protection in place, that they're not going to be punished for that. Potency means that they can say anything. And in the coaching dialogue, they're equals as human beings. And potency, protection, and permission. Permission to tell the truth, permission to ask questions, permission to be wrong. And it's so important. I think too often we are, we're brittle, we're, um, we're thin skinned, we're worried about being judged. And you touched on something a moment ago, which was really interesting, which is what can I learn? One of the things I see too often is that salespeople don't learn, they don't invest in themselves. They're always looking with a handout to the company, asking, when will you train me? I think that training, honestly, the best kind of training environments are ones where the salesperson, has to put their hand in their pocket to get some of the training and invest in themselves. And that's a really interesting dynamic. It's very difficult to get them to buy into it. Any thoughts?
1: Yes, we're back to what do you hire for and think about when you bring in a salesperson or a sales manager? And I believe what you're talking about is humility. And the definition that C.S. Lewis gives of humility, it's not that you think less of yourself, it's that you think of yourself less. So this ties to <laughs> learning, it ties to learning because you have to be able to acknowledge that you don't know everything, that you have something that you could learn, and then be willing, in fact, hungry and eager to always be learning more. In sales, humility is treated as, um, as a negative. Instead, there's this certain priority or value placed on arrogance, on pretending for, that, you know that, you
0: that you don't, don't.
1: yes. So to make that shift, valuing learning would set that up in a sales culture.
0: One of the role models I always set up for my clients is Colombo, the best salesperson to ever walk the questions. face of this planet. The questions well, that he asked, yes. Well, it's not just the questions, which were wonderful. But so Deb, yeah. remind me, where <laughs> were you on Thursday between 8 and 10 o'clock?
1: The Are pretending the, not uh, to know and the, yes.
0: I I remember. I'm sorry. I'm being a bit slow. It's the same thing. If you're a street fighter, don't present that you're the strongest. Look weak because that causes people to underestimate. Don't try and be the smartest person in the room. As a manager, I think humility is a really important quality as well. It's very difficult to genuinely love and follow a boss who is full of their own self-importance. And I remember one of my clients brought Stephen Covey over to the UK. And I remember asking a truly mediocre question, but Dr. Covey came back with the best answer and it was a watershed moment for me. And his response was, the greatest among us serve the most. And I think we've forgotten about the value, the importance of service. That's that humility to not make it about us. And you mentioned earlier on, your job is to be the guide. It's not to be the hero. And you look at every great film, every great book, there's a problem, a protagonist, then they hit the skids, they find their Yoda, their Sherpa Tent, whoever it happens to be, and then they become the hero. But the guide is there to help them. And that's our job in sales and in management. It's to be a leaders and a safe pair of hands. But it's not to be the hero.
1: I agree. It's all about a misspelling. We fear this thing called failure. Failure is what we'd all like to avoid, but the spelling error is the word that comes before failure. If you spell it the right way, it's Y-O-U-R. It's your failure. Go ahead and make it, embrace it, value it, cherish it because it's the best learning opportunity that you're going to have and then be willing to dive back in and make another one the spelling error that way too many people make in sales is that they spell that first word Y-O-U apostrophe R-E.
0: Very good point.
1: That it's not valid to think of it that way.
0: Well, that comes back to that whole piece between identity and role. You can fail in role. You can't fail at identity. Who you yes. are is who you are. Yes. And learning to accept yourself and learning to love yourself. I know it sounds almost at the point where I want to go out and hug a tree But if you don't like the person looking back in the mirror, what on earth are you doing? You need to do some fundamental work first on that because you get reflected back what you project out. Yes. This is where I think a lot of work needs to be done because a lot of managers try to motivate their people. You cannot motivate anyone to do anything ever. Motivation is an internal fire. You can inspire, bully, brutalize, cajole, bribe, whatever it happens to be. But motivation is internal. And this is one of the things that I'm deeply disappointed by very often, which is that you ask the question, so Deb, tell me, each of your salespeople, what's their personal motivation for being in sales? Why are they doing this? Who are they doing it for? What do they genuinely want the money for? Because I don't think there is a salesperson out there unless they are incredibly shallow and psychopathic. Who actually cares that much about the money? What they want is the choices it can bring them, the protection that it can offer to their families to themselves, the experiences and too often that is completely overlooked because our sales managers don't want to have those deeply sensitive, extremely vulnerable conversations with people
1: it's because they don't know that leadership matters. this is that lower part of the pyramid. If I know what your intrinsic motivations are if I know how to light a a spark or to fan, a flame that's already in you, that's going to give me a lot more opportunity than trying to light a fire under you, which is always going to be subject to the conditions around extinguishing that flame. But it's vulnerable even for a sales manager to have that conversation because they think what they're supposed to be saying is, get out there, make more sales. If they could just say that the right way, they think they've got it all mastered. It's deficit.
0: Who is your best boss and why?
1: Oh, I've had so many good ones. I've been very, very fortunate. I will say that one of my best bosses, although she was not my direct boss, she was my boss's boss, her name was Candy Thompson. It was very early in my sales career. And she would say things to me, she would teach me things like, if you feel the tears coming on, just put your fingers right here on either side of your eyes around your nose and, and pinch your tear ducts so that you don't cry. So she taught me some very practical things, but she also taught me that I had a voice and that I should use my voice and that it was okay to be an outlier and to have a differing opinion and to offer that. Pinch your tear duct so you don't cry when you're offering that, that other opinion, but don't hold it back either. And she and I remain friends to this day. I really have been extremely fortunate to have good bosses
0: and mentors. Excellent. I'm delighted to hear it. So tell me this, who do you read? What podcasts do you follow? If you are recommending stuff to people, where would you point them?
1: Well, I am a very, very big reader and I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also watch a lot of webinars. I'm going to say that if you come over to the Sales Experts channel, that's a good starting place because everything there is free and it's fabulous. And there are 155 now, I think, different voices represented of sales authors and researchers and thought leaders and speakers, coaches from around the world. They're all collaborating in this one community and they've put together videos and webinars. They're topically indexed so that you can find exactly what you're looking for when you need it. Now, it was a very good
0: one have, last week.
1: Which one was that? Was that uh, the Carol Mahoney one?
0: No, Bob interviewed me and Dave.
1: Oh, <laughs> yes, fantastic. Okay, <laughs> I lose track of what's when. But every week there are usually three to four that come out. There are over 500 different pieces of content now available. And so that's a bit self-serving since I'm very closely tied to the sales experts channel. But it is- You've
0: been very generous, so you're allowed to be a bit self-serving.
1: Okay, well, (laughs) check it out. It's really worth it. I learn a lot there every week.
0: Excellent. Okay, so the killer, the million dollar question. You have your golden ticket. You can go and advise the idiot Deb at 23 years old. What would you advise her to do differently, not do, stop doing?
1: My advice would be settle down. I was so eager. I wanted to do everything immediately. I was unwilling at age 23 to put in the time and to take the steps to learn and to accept a pace of growing slowly. So I just tried to do too much too fast, which means that mostly I learned by making big mistakes as opposed to taking a more measured approach. So my advice to 23-year-old me would be settle down, do it right. If you don't have time to do it right once, you certainly don't have time to do it wrong twice. And I could save myself a lot of time.
0: I think that's very sage advice. I'd take that slightly further in my case, which is that I was such an aggressive learner, or I thought I was. But what I did was I consumed lots of material that didn't take enough time to slow down to implement. And so I was the best educated pauper that you could imagine. Because you know I worked so hard and I read and I listen to audios and I, whatever, but you've got to take time to implement your learning and then reinforce it so I think the lesson from there is slow down to speed up so Deb, tell me how can people get a hold of you
1: Well I hope you will get a hold of me we can connect on LinkedIn you can certainly email me directly I always enjoy questions and conversations My website the company is called People First Productivity Solutions, so the website is People First PS. The first two words spelled out. The second PS stands for Productivity Solutions. People First PS, and that's my email address is that. too. Com? It is .com. .com, and the email address the same: deb.calvert at people first ps.
0: Excellent. And one parting thought then: what are you seeing coming down the pipe in terms of one cultural shift that you're seeing in the world of sales?
1: We're already in the midst of it. It is this whole notion of automation of ai of whatever's in your tech stack and so the shifts in selling to me appear to be mostly about the mechanics of selling and i this is why i have that concern we started with which is around too much of the enablement and this notion that that's going to do the work of selling when selling will always be a human to human type of a of an experience and The real shift that should be made is around creating the customer experience, ennobling the customer and and yourself being ennobled as a seller. I think that we're Uh, fully in the thick of that.
0: Absolutely. And I'd take that one step further, which is I think you need to focus on doing the basics well consistently over time and meaning it. And then you can put your sales enablement stacks on top. If you don't do that, all of your money is largely wasted. And frankly, you'd be better off with lottery tickets. I agree. (laughs) Excellent. Deb Calvert, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for coming on. I'd love to have you back if you're willing to tolerate the constant interruptions from me. So this Marcus Kalki signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Happy selling. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, then please get in touch. Or if there's someone that you know who you'd really love to have me interrogate, then please have them pass me their details. And you can get in touch with me via LinkedIn or on marcus.calkey at sandler.com. Deb, thank you. Thank you.